Wow, Patty, talking about partnerships and relationships today. This is going to be good. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. How about that uh, interview with Ken? That was awesome, wasn't it? It really was. I mean, he he really epitomizes uh, the relationships, the relationship, and how he's how he's built those over the years. Right. I think everybody's really going to enjoy that. Yes. Um, we'll wrap it up with some good questions from the field, the insiders report. I just feel like it's a pretty good episode today and, and kind of highlights the importance of those partnerships and relationships. I do too. I hope everybody enjoys it. Awesome. Let's jump into it. So to get right into this, Ken, um, I know that you've been in this business for a really long time. Um, would you mind for our audience giving us a little background about yourself and how you came into merchant services, how long you've worked in the business, companies you've been involved with, sort of a thumbnail sketch of your of your career so far? I'd be I'd be happy to do that. And thank you both for the time uh, today. And I am an old timer. I'm proud of my heritage and the experience has served me well along the way. And it's nice to have as many friends as I. I do in the industry, so as issues come up, I can pick up the phone and, and reach out to them. I'm going to call. I'm going to spend a, a, a bit more time on some of my earlier jobs, as although they are less well known, I think they're equally instrumental. Okay. And I started way back in 1989. My first job out of college was for Wells Fargo Bank's issuing division, and I started in a formal training program for Wells Fargo. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful first job. It was in Concord, California. I really didn't appreciate at the time how fortunate I was to have that as my first job. As a trainee, I had functional rotations in the main uh, main areas on the issuing side, including plastics, where we actually embossed the cards. Embossed the cards, right? We had a full man trap, um, and and you had to wear special clothes with no pockets to make sure that you didn't have a card on you as you were coming in and out of it mm-hmm. also obviously on the issuing department uh, issuing division we had collections customer service legal fraud lost stolen marketing and credit and again it was a great way to get the entire understanding of the issuing side of the business and the training program lasted for six months and at the conclusion I had the opportunity to apply for an off-shift customer service position, uh, supervising an off-shift customer service unit. And and I, I want to emphasize off-shift because working in a 24-hour service center was a, a great way to understand the business because we had to make calls when most of management was not there. And obviously, you have all kinds of odd issues where people needing emergency increases because – um, they may need to make bail, they need an emergency um, car repair, or something of the like where the, you know, your, your compassion really feels for these individuals. At the same time, you have to adhere to whatever the bank's uh, credit policies were and, and keep the customers happy. We also had emergency replacements because you know, people would lose or break their card in all kinds of weird ways. And, and at the same time, you know, we had to, to meet the service standards. So um, it, it was a little bit like, like night court at times, but um, completely different from today's issuers And that all calls were handled stateside and in California. Hmm. Next, uh, um, in order to land a job with more regular hours, I shifted to supervising a lost stolen unit where we handled calls from folks who needed their card replaced. Obviously, they had their card stolen or they lost it, and we had to examine the transactions that were on their card at the time of the call, mm-hmm. post the valid transactions to their new card, 
and and either charge off or hopefully charge back, obviously, to the acquirer in this case, hmm. the transaction that, that we could. And so obviously we're trying to understand the rules, look for a, any um, way that we could, obviously, within Visa MasterCard rules to post that back to the acquirer. It was very uh, – um, unique educational positions that, that allowed me to, to better understand the chargeback rules, obviously from the issuing side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So from there, I had the opportunity to apply and, and get a job on the acquiring side. There was an opening supervising a technical support desk where we took calls from merchants um, who were having issues with either their terminals, their point of sale, or their software. No, no gateways back then. Right. It could have been a simple terminal issue or something more complex. And at the time, the very largest merchant had leased lines that ran from their location to other large merchants and then on to the authorization center. And so oftentimes the issue was a telco problem, and we had to troubleshoot with the merchant and the telco to identify what the problem was, which was, which was messing up their ability to get an authorization. Uh, also at the same time, the interchange categories were expanding with, with PS2000, right, right. and the incentive interchange categories were being put in. And so we were also in the process of moving merchants from fixed rates to, to tiered rates. That was the, the beginning of the, mm -hmm. the tiered rate. Hmm. And, and then also, Wells Fargo was among the very first, if not the first, joint venture with First Data. Right, and that right. was all happening while I was there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife and I were living in the Bay Area, and we both had fine jobs, but, but she's from Humboldt County. And so we, we had the opportunity to, to move up here and start an acquiring center for a small community-based bank called Humboldt Bank. And we thought if it didn't work out in Humboldt County, we could always get our, you know, our similar jobs back, perhaps not the same ones, but similar jobs back. And sure. so we took a chance mm -hmm. when we, we moved up to Humboldt County. Um, but I had a, a boss, Ted Mason, who was very um, encouraging. He, you know, was was a mentor to me for many, many years, um, and continually extend my uh, my rope, um, and allowed us to grow a department from obviously I was employee number one to a, an eventual department with over a hundred employees. We we had both in-house proprietary portfolios and an ISO sponsorship division. Mm -hmm. and, and I had the opportunity to see the entire acquiring organization start from you know, applying for Visa and MasterCard membership to everything else along the way. We had our own in-house uh, uh, development team that, that allowed us to uh, make a number of in-house functions much more efficient than they otherwise would be. Um, obviously, you know, sales, uh, ops, compliance, risk, all that stuff, all, sure. all within this division for Humboldt Bank. Right. Um, and I'm, you know, remain friends with many of the teammates that that I worked with, and and think very fondly of the time that I work with them. But you all probably know Linda, you know Linda Straub, Jamie Savant, right. Xavier Ayala, and Matt Matt Dreis, and and I'm just so pleased I got to spend a lot of time working with those individuals. At the end of of ten years. Um, our final year at the bank, we were processing over $5 billion for, for 100,000 merchants. We also had very significant deposits from all of the processing, but 
at the time, Humboldt Bank was traded on NASDAQ, and it was only a $1.5 billion bank. But we were making all of this money from merchant processing, and it was a little bit difficult because um, Ted Mason, my original boss and CEO, had retired, and a new CEO came in and just didn't quite um, – I understand may not be the right word, but couldn't properly convey the story. Right. Uh, when he went on his uh, his uh, investor shows, how a community bank fit with this um, processing center, and so he put our organization, our, our division, up for sale. And the first sale that was announced actually fell through. That was to iPayments. Um, ah. But there was a um, significant bump in the stock market along those uh, along that same time period. And so uh, because of that, and obviously some other issues, the, the sale fell through. But it was very difficult because we had announced it publicly. Obviously, the team members knew. And so we had to obviously keep everyone engaged while we had this thing over our head saying, hey, you know, we're in the process of, of selling the company. Keep the, you know, the sales partners engaged and, and sure. try to make sure that they um, didn't flee. Sure. And so that was a little bit difficult time. And uh, I really appreciate the team that, that obviously continued to stay with me and allowed the sale to take place to a privately held uh, bank organization, First National Bank of Arizona and First National Bank of Nevada. Um, the bank wasn't much larger than Humboldt Bank was, but, but one, it was privately owned, and two, it was growing really fast. It was owned by by Ray Lamb and run by his son, Pat Lamb. And uh, both of, I had the, uh, the privilege of working for both of those during my five years while Humboldt, now Humboldt Merchant Services, was a standalone company owned by First National Bank uh, Arizona and First National Bank of Nevada. And they supplied some support for us, for example, on the HR side or on the, uh, the finance side but allowed us to be a wholly owned ISO of a bank. And so in that uh, relatively unique structure, although we were an ISO, Visa and MasterCard looked at us like a bank. And so, you know, we had some advantages because of that. Obviously, from a regulatory framework, we still had to maintain and meet um, the bank's criteria. Right. Um, at this time, you know, this was a, you know, they bought us in 2003. The credit credit card processing market was expanding. E-commerce was was starting to become more mature. Point of sale units were more becoming more commonplace. And and you know, we had a great team that we brought with us from Humboldt Bank. Our organization stayed in Humboldt County uh, um, and grew really um, really nicely after the sale. It was a great opportunity for myself and and all the team members that uh, stayed on. It was also an interesting time. Uh, unfortunately, I mentioned that the bank was growing very fast as well. Mm -hmm. um, they were heavily invested in mortgage, and uh, unfortunately, the bank failed mm -hmm. in 2008. Mm -hmm. They were among wow. the first bank failures that took place, if you remember. Um, right, you right know, after the then. crash, yeah. Hmm. Wow. And so um, typically during a, what I've come to learn, during a bank failure, the FDIC already has most of the assets of the bank sold. And, and they did in this situation as well. But, but our company, 
Humboldt Merchant Services was was unique and different from most of what the rest of the bank did. And so the FDIC really didn't know what to do with us. So they, mm-hmm. they continued to own us and allowed us to run as a standalone company um, while they figured out what to do with us. And that was also a very unique period that we could probably uh, do an entire new podcast, podcast on. on. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> Probably the the only guys are probably the only ISO to ever be owned by the FDIC. I believe so. (laughs) You know that's that's a a good point, James. We probably were, and and they didn't know what to make of us. And in Mm -hmm. fact, on the first day they came in and and they said, "Well, how much money do you need to continue operating?" And and you know we just kind of shook our heads and said, "Well, actually, we're a cash provider to uh, the rest of the bank, and and the bank was going through a process to sell us because." They needed the cash to uh, try to keep the bank afloat. So um, I think we were fortunate, but the FDIC officer in charge was a fair, hardworking uh, individual, and um, I got to know him during that three and a half months, and we developed, I think, a mutual level of respect. And uh, he allowed that sale process to continue and allowed me to continue managing uh, the business um, just basically as we had been managing. Um, and it was fortunate that the sale process was continuing on, and Monera Solutions uh, U.S. division purchased right. us in, in 2008. And so that was, uh, uh, you know, I think a good soft landing for Humboldt Merchant Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monera Solutions wanted the business and activity that we were engaged in. And so although it was a distress sale, because we were owned by the FDIC, I think it was a good place for, for for us to go, and I had the opportunity to work for, for Greg Cohen and remain friends with both him and and uh, another individual that I worked with there, Joe Garza and Tony Cacogno and, and some others that uh, were just great individuals to work with and, and get to know during the 18 months I, I worked there. Ultimately, commuting you know across the country right. um, or moving wasn't quite the right thing for, for me and my family. My, my kids were just starting high school. And so I opted to leave at the end of 18 months. That was kind of at the conclusion of um, the integration of Humboldt Merchant Services. And so I, I joined two uh, longtime friends and associates, Steve Kimberling and Scott Bartlett, and we started Eureka Payments. And we are a small Eureka. sales and service. <laughs> it, right in Eureka, yes. <laughs> Um, but we're a small sales service and consulting firm, and we service merchants in and around. We have two offices, one in Southern Oregon and, and one in Northern California, and the business owners within those two markets have a similar thought process. And we also work with industry referrals that come to us on a nationwide basis. And, and I know many of the folks listening will probably be able to relate well to the ISO business, but one aspect of the work, which is a little bit unique, is the work that I've done as an expert witness consultant. And, and that work is it's precise, it's pressure-filled, and it's very visible. Mm-hmm. I've worked um, with the Justice, Justice Department on, on two specific occasions. One was as the expert witness on the Jeremy Johnson case in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And if you think about you – know, sometimes you know, we see we – see, you know, court cases in the news or whatnot, 
but you're having to explain to a judge and jury who really have no uh, understanding of credit card processing and even less of the acquiring side right and explain the difference between the rules um bank regulations and obviously industry practice as well as um how those interface with the different entities that are involved and what an iso can do and can't do mm -hmm. and so um it's it's enjoyable but it also it, you know can be a very difficult or stressful job because obviously folks are relying on the things that that you're saying to determine in some cases the liberty of the uh, of the individual being tried right right well well thank you thank you ken that's really uh that's that's quite a quite a career you've had there yeah i kept looking over at patty because it's like uh, i learned something every time on this podcast episode of like oh i didn't realize it worked that way or, uh -huh, you know so uh-huh yeah like uh lease lines you don't remember yeah, those do you said lease lines i'm looking at patty going what's a lease line <laughs> <laughs> Hey, don't rub it in, young man. Yeah, right? right. I'm, I'm I, not done yet, okay? Don't rub it in. Neither of us are, Ken. So <laughs> so what would you say, Ken? I mean, you've, been, you've, you've seen a lot of things. What would you say are the two or three biggest changes that you've witnessed in, in this business over the course of your career? Well, um, I appreciate you only asking for two or three, but, but I'm going to over-deliver, and I'm going to give you four or five. Um, okay, shoot. I think the first... The, the, the first is the onset of residuals, mm -hmm. which move sales representatives away from equipment leases and, right. and move them towards becoming service professionals. And that's mm -hmm. actually been good for mm -hmm. our industry. Mm -hmm. The second is, is the rise of the free or low price equipment. And both of those activities shifted profits from the acquirers and require, required acquirers to operate more efficiently. And, and in some cases, um, some acquirers just went out of business, right? Because right. they were operating it more as a, um, they were operating their business more as a lifestyle rather than as a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, I think, you know, requiring more discipline within businesses and then spreading the revenues from the acquiring organizations to the merchant level salespeople, I, I don't think, you know, obviously, some of us old timers complain that business isn't as easy as it used to be. Right. But I would argue that that um, some of that dispersion to the sales teams is a good thing, and it allows the sales professionals to be more, um, you know, to basically put more investment in themselves mm -hmm. and present our offerings better to the merchants. And sure. I know Jamie Savant and I both take great pride. In, in how trans we were at Humboldt Merchant Services. And we made many of our, I don't wanna say we made them because you know they did the work, but we allowed many of our sales partners to become very wealthy individuals. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm proud for being a part of it. And I, and I don't wanna take credit from them. So I, I, I apologize yeah. if I worded that wrong, um, but we want it to be a very transparent organization and empower them to become wealthy individuals. and and got to work with folks like USA Pay at its inception when, when that mm -hmm. gateway first started and, you know, give a shout out to Ben and Alex Koretsky um, because we allowed them or not, again, that's the wrong word, assisted them in, uh, you know, during their very formative days. Sure. Sure. I think another significant change was the 
I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the radical expansion of interchange rates mm -hmm. with the introduction of the high-value rewards cards, the, the commercial and procurement cards to try to attract the American Express clients, and the specialization of rates to attract new categories of merchants, right. and with the lowering of the debit interchange with the Durbin Amendment. And mm -hmm. really the competing forces that pulled the higher rates higher and the lower rates lower really complicated billing for merchants sure. and, and acquires too. It made competitor com, uh, competitor analysis more difficult, mm -hmm. um, but it also required acquiring organizations to have more expertise. Right, right. I think adding to the difficulty of, of the statement analysis is when the card networks migrated from card associations to for-profit entities, mm -hmm. they dramatically and continually increased their network fees. And I, you know, every time I see an increase in those, I, I kind of shake my head and say, you know, are they they trying to kill the uh, uh, the goose? Yeah, yeah. Um, but right. whereas before, you didn't even think about, or at least they were negligible, the network fees, they are now very significant especially with your small ticket uh, retailers because sure. of the the nabu fees and the acquire processing fees they they pack an extra you know one and a half to two cents on every transaction yeah and so i i think that's further uh, obviously they have the merchant location fee and the fan fee as well on those monthly fees and those those two i think are are problematic or could be problematic and give rise to some other um, opportunities. I think another uh, you know, transformative change was the increase in the security breaches, which yes. basically necessitated an entirely new niche service to be created. And, and this forced acquirers and merchants to protect their data or, or face the consequences of not doing so mm -hmm. in the form of unflattering uh, press, you know, tons of fines along with, with uh, lawsuits from consumers, issuing banks, and shareholders. Right. So yeah. almost overnight, system security became a requirement to be in the business. And although that, that increased processor cost, I think acquirers have more than made up for that in the form of PCI fees, non-compliance fees, and, and, and monitoring fees. Um, and it's also provided a tremendous opportunity for those who can take their solution out of PCI scope while still benefiting or serving the merchants because they can, you know, make a huge difference between their offering, which may be substantially less work for the merchant to certify PCI than the alternative. And still keep them secure, which is what's really important. Exactly. Right. You know, removing um, as much as you can from PCI scope, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, as an aside, there's a tipping point for every merchant when the monthly fees simply become too, um, too great for them. Right. And and I think that we all need to be looking and trying to minimize the monthly fees as a percentage of our total revenues. The greater the percentage of your of your monthly fees are of your total revenue, the more apt that that merchant is going to leave. I think there's a direct correlation. And causation between uh, uh, monthly fees and merchant attrition. I think you have a point and there. So, yeah, yep. I would encourage all of us to think about um, to think about that when deciding our non-compliant or or PCI fees. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you want any proof of that, I mean, it's just look at Square. There's a reason right. why a lot of merchants like them because there's no monthly fee. It's this flat rate, you know. So I think that's. Uh, I think the other thing too, the other correlation there, I would think, would also be that you know the percentage of your uh, fees that are are monthly. Well, that would show that your average volume for your merchants probably lower. That's and the lower yeah. volume merchants are more likely to cancel. So mm-hmm. they're definitely gonna have a correlation there. Especially if they're paying higher monthly fees. Exactly. Yeah, right. small merchants with high monthly fees. That's a that's a high attrition category right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amen. Um, just continuing on I, with, you know, some of the, the changes I've seen over my, again, long career, but, but the culmination of the fee complexity and the diversity of interchange, the diversity of, of payment acceptance, if you bundle that with the rise of big data and the cheaper computing power and, and increase in e-commerce, and that's allowed a whole new force to emerge, and you mm-hmm. just mentioned it, James, um, but the pay facts right. and, and the other monoline acquires which attack a very narrow vertical or, or merchant type. Right. And, you know, software vendors, too, are making it easier for merchants to accept payments with, you know, semi-integrated APIs. And, and to a large extent, they remove um, PCI from the scope of most of what they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's been a huge time in the pay fact. I mean, that's been just a massive change. So it has, and, and there's also different derivations of you know whether it's a registered payfac or, or right. acting payfac like, and and you know you mentioned Square and and you know PayPal as well. It's interesting how they they came to be. It's it seems like they they were large enough that they could you know basically push their way into the industry by first operating outside of the rules for mm-hmm. a period of time yeah, until exactly. the rules just changed to, to accept them. Right. And, and obviously there were tons of companies that have been trampled mm-hmm. even though they went down the same road, but they just weren't large enough to will, to withstand the onslaught. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Of, you know, the pushback from Visa and MasterCard. So it's interesting how, how they basically made the industry change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. So what would you say, Ken, what would be some of the lessons that you've learned about success in merchant services, um, sort of building um, on what, you've, what we've just been talking about so far? Well, I don't know if, if all of my lessons can be based on success. But, but, <laughs> but we can learn from our failures, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the industry has grown more competitive, and as I said earlier, there's still very significant profits and opportunity. And if you think about the number and the size of investments that we read about daily coming into our industry, we are very lucky to be in an industry with the wind at our back. Industries and individuals would not be trying to fight their way in if this wasn't lucrative. If this didn't have and, and some... No, yes, exactly. Yeah, nobody's fighting to open up a new newspaper in town. <laughs> that's true, but there, you see new ISOs all the time. Oh, yes, you do. Uh, yes, and, and that's a good indicator. Yes, so I agree. Obviously it makes things tougher. It's, a, it's an indicator of health. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so although we need to be more efficient than, than in years past, we are still in a growing industry with, with the benefit of a residual income stream. And so long as we take care of our clients, the work that we do today pays off for it in months and years to come. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you think about my desire and need to stay in Humboldt County, this industry provides a lifestyle to raise a family in different parts of the country and to provide, uh, to you provide know, well for them. To merchants right. who need trusted partners. And so I think that's, you know, that's something that this industry 
um, offers anybody that, that is looking for it. Mm-hmm. I know all of us you know, have to learn more. We have to know more. We have to read more than in the past. But, again, that's, that's opportunity where in, in the past in, anyone could become a merchant professional. The, the commitment to be one today is, is much greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Knowledge barrier, security barrier, technology barrier. Um, but those high, barriers, right? I mean, but if you think about, you know, I'm calling them barriers, um, they give knowledgeable professionals an advantage. Mm-hmm, and right. obviously they give technology professionals an advantage so that we can all better protect um, our customers and residual income streams. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about a new person today, um, what I would, would recommend that they do is to pick a small slice of the market and only go after that segment. Great advice. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I'm repeating what, what about, you know, 8,000 people have probably said, you know, on, in the green sheet, but a, a lot has been written, for example, on the cash discount program. And while I don't necessarily believe it's a good solution for, for most merchants, it's an angle. Yes. It's something to share. It's information to discuss. In a similar fashion, if a new person were to become an expert on PCI, they could take that with them and pursue merchant types, which are more vulnerable to an ex- to, to exploit. Sure, sure. Yep, absolutely. And, I mean, think about obviously what we're all looking to do. You know, sell a technology which makes it easier for merchants to make money, and and they're going to stay with you if it's easier mm-hmm. for them. Their their business is not credit card processing. Their business is selling their service or product or, or whatever it is that they're, they're offering, and we're a noise to them. Yes. And I, I sit down and ask my business partners, guys, we see so many merchants day in and day out that are so overpaying for processing because it's not their main business. Uh, one of my questions is, what are we so overpaying for? Because you know, there's, there's so many things that go into running a business that we're not experts on. I'm sure we're, we're being way overcharged on something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, surcharge and convenience fees, those areas too are elusive enough that they can give an, an average professional a significant leg up if they were to focus on it. On that niche, and sure. On that specific niche, yeah. The right. key is uh, to be unique and, and have talking points in one area and, and use a precision you know, technology or instrument unless until you're sufficiently funded that you can be more broad with your offering. And then, then you can decide whether you wish to be more broad. Excellent yeah. idea. Excellent advice. Very I, good. I, in thinking about this, I kind of wrote down about five other points. If, if there's time, I'll just kind of read through them. Sure. So this is just kind of um, life lessons. But I think a bad contract with a good partner beats a good contract with a crummy partner any day. Yeah, yes. um, so true. <laughs> and you can all relate to that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then two, getting optimal pricing from, from our partners and vendors is critical, but getting the best service is more so because it's going to save us time and clients over the long run. So maybe your margins yeah. might be lesser, but, but obviously vet the service um, you know, more, more than you're betting the pricing. Sure, absolutely. Sure. Sticky services, sticky customers are, are better than. Well, and you know, and it, it's like you have to look at the cost of time, right? I mean, you're with an ISO or you're with a partner that's providing a terrible experience for you. You're spending half your day putting out fires that you could be spending on your business. So to get a growing your business, you know, sure. your your margins hurt a little bit. Well, yeah, but you're you're able to put twice the effort into growing the business. 
Right. I, 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 I so believe that because, you know, we as an ISO can lessen our staff. And, and if we have a good partner that provides good service, whereas if you're getting bad service, you have to over-employ and right. take care mm-hmm. of functions that should be done by your, your acquiring entity, but because they're providing poor service, they're not doing it, and you have to do it for them. Right, right, right. Yep. So I think this is an obvious one. Um, acknowledge when you don't know something. It will make mm-hmm. you more approachable and credible. There's, there's, there's so much stuff within our industry. You're not, no one is ever going to know it all, and, and so don't fake it or, or um, imply And people otherwise. love to share their knowledge anyway. Yep. Don't you think? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, there, there's tons that I can share and tons of places where I'm not aware of the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the things ISOs need to do more of is to say no more often. And this, I think it's in line with my earlier comments, but opting not to do business that you can't do well right. will buy you reference, references and respect. You won't sure. take on clients sure. that you serve poorly, poorly which will revolt, result in, in negative reviews. Right. And it may be counterintuitive to turn away business, uh, as we all want to do as much business as we can. But, but declining business when you can't serve it professionally will, long run, uh, be a win. Well, and it, and it also hurts your operational costs so much. That's one thing I've learned with my business is, you know, whenever I, I introduce variation into it that I think, oh, this is a great new opportunity. Um, well, you know, it may look like it on the surface, but then you have this operational cost of, you know, now I need a new person that specializes in this area or that area. And, and all of a sudden my software that I customized to manage this part of the business doesn't work anymore. And, you know, it's all the operational costs that go along with getting outside of your area of expertise are just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and there may be a time to move there, but do it deliberately. Don't, right. don't let it happen to you. Right. Yep. And uh, I think everyone knows this, but we're a reoccurring revenue business. All of our energies should revolve around building long-term clients. And if we have transactional business or trans- transactional activities, we should be thinking about how we could shift that to further the residual side of our business. Mm-hmm. Even if it means sacrificing absolute transactional revenue, Yeah. it's better for us in the long run. Excellent, excellent Good stuff. Well, uh, I have one last question, Ken. I think we can get to this. Um, mm-hmm. If you could kind of look into your crystal ball and tell us what do you think some of the most profound challenges um, that are facing ISOs and MLSs today? Um, that's uh, Well, we don't have profound challenges, right? Healthcare workers, lawmakers, judges, clergy, they have profound they're challenges. They're profound. Okay, okay. <laughs> we have opportunities. And, and they're tremendous, I, right? <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. they really are. We're a growing industry, and and what I would suggest is that to to, to you know win those, folks need to plan. And I suggest it, it be written. You can share it with your mentors and friends, um, and and keep friends, right? Make you know collect friends along the way because mm-hmm. um, it's always nice to be able to call a friend and say, hey, you know, here's what's going on. What would you do in this situation? But let them pick your plan apart. And then finalize it and use it not as your absolute, but as a, as a guideline so you can modify it and proceed. And then right. having a plan that's written down will let you know where you failed mm-hmm. and potentially what you should do next. And, mm-hmm. and there's three things that I recommend every uh, um, everyone in our industry track as closely as they possibly can. And, and those three things are first is attrition by volume, 
by accounts and by reason. Know why every account left. Mm -hmm. You know, make sure the entire team knows why. And, and if it's a big team, this may require a meeting of some sort. But be acutely aware of the closures and, and mourn the loss of, of your clients. We, we all work too hard to get the accounts to see them leave. And this will identify if there's something, if there's a feature or service that, that we either need to advertise better because we have it and the merchant just didn't know it, or if we're already offering it, something we may need to add, to add mm -hmm. or think about adding anyways. Sure. And then when we're going after a new account on a new business, understand if they didn't choose you, who they choose. Did they select a new technology or, or point of sale? You know, was it a payback or an industry-specific solution? And while some of that data is qualitative, over time, you can see if there's a hole in, in your offering. And then I think the last thing is, is to keep an eye on the number of solicitations that you're receiving for your business. Mm -hmm. That is going to continue to be an indicator of the health uh, of, of our industry. That's a good point, yes. Yep. Sure. Uh, and, and then obviously keep an eye on what our business is, which is make it e making it easier for business to accept payments. That's our that's our business. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I got one more minute, my, Go my last point would be to have an exit plan. Good point. Um, yeah, it, it may be something that you don't think a lot about. It. You may not plan on it, but but something may happen within your life, within your family, or within your business partners. And having one in place will will assist you. And um, yeah. I, I know Jamie Savon or um, Xavier Ariella. Regina Rich would love to talk to you more about that, too. We'll, we'll have we'll to put have to that along. on our yeah, schedule. Definitely. Yes. Well, that was a great interview. Well, thank you very much. That was some great information. Some really great insights, Ken. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you some more. Of course. And, and um, uh, you're, please put my email out if anyone has additional comments or things they'd like definitely. to discuss about this or, or challenge me on some of the things I, I mentioned. I would welcome that opportunity. Why don't you go ahead and, go ahead and give them the email address? So yeah, give it to us now. And we, we can put it right there. Okay, it's it's Ken M at EurekaPayments.com, and if you forget it, it's it's on our website. Cool, great, awesome. Ken. Thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you very much, and uh, have a great day. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the Optimum program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Here we go. So questions for today. Stephen asks, do you envision any big changes in the industry in the near future? And if so, could this affect the sales reps who are going door to door? Patty, what do you see as big changes? Let me throw this one to you first today. Well, you know, I think the big changes we're seeing already in, yeah. the, in the form of cash discounting. I think that's probably the biggest change that this sure. industry has seen probably 
uh, certainly since the free terminal. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think the other one, too, I would say the other kind of large change is um, the software integrations. Sure. Right. You know, because that's having a really big impact. I mean, and let's face it. You know, there's a lot of, it, it, you know, the difference to me is cash discounting is the biggest change to affect our industry from the inside out of mm-hmm. like our you know, ISOs and reps. Right. Whereas the software is the biggest change of the outsiders coming in. Right, and with, it, you know, and Square, etc. Sure, and I think there's, you know, there's a growing requirement for that kind of integration. Right, right. You know, if you're going to be a full service merchant services provider, right, then you, you, need- you know, you really need. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, to put it bluntly, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're trying to sell merchants, and you don't know what a var sheet is. You better learn. You're in trouble, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, so you, you know you have to understand these things. You need to be able to easily call a software provider mm-hmm. and talk to them about integrating your payment solution into their system, right? And if you can't do that, you know you need to you need to uh, do some work. And, and some I research. think you know we've discussed this in, in other podcasts that you know pick your vertical, right? You know, pick your niche. You know find us find a software integrator that works with that niche. And then kind of you can expand out from there. And then you can expand. And I sure. think how it's going to affect the uh, the feed on the street, how it's going to affect mm-hmm. your selling, I think it's only going to make you better. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and again, I, I clarified this in a previous episode, but, you know, like we, we, like we talked to Donnie Troy in a recent episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I built my portfolio the same way he did. I would, when, you know, I want to be careful when I tell people you have to focus on a niche. One of the niches that you can focus on is small mom and pop shop physical location businesses. Right. right. So, you know, it's a very effective strategy to go out there and, and go after auto repair, uh, you know, retail restaurant locations that are on a street mm-hmm. because because their needs are all very similar at this point. They're, right. they're you know, normal terminals. But where you're going to run into trouble with that strategy is to Stephen's point is, you know, as things change. And as even those small businesses start to look at their tablet point of sale solution or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, well, now you need to know a little bit more. And mm-hmm. now you need to be a little more specialized uh, so you don't have to walk out every time. You, see, you know, so many reps out there today, Patty, are like, oh, they see a point of sale system, ah, turn around and walk out. Right. They can't do anything with that. It's not a terminal. Nope, sorry. I don't know yeah. what to do with that. Yeah. Well, you're going to lose a ton of profit. A ton of business because that's the way it's going. Yep. Here's a question from Henry that a lot of people are thinking about and asking, is the bottom going to fall out of cash discount programs? Surcharging is illegal in 10 states, one of which is Texas, where I reside. My fear is that if we go after cash discounting vigorously, how long will it be before someone says you can't do this anymore because it's surcharging? So here's I'm going to answer this question, Henry, in a very different way. So obviously the the first answer would be listen to our previous podcast episode on cash discounting. Right. We've had two. I know one where I did a section on it and then one where Patty did a segment on it. So, um, you know, definitely check that out. But um, I'm going to answer this in a different way. And I'm going to say, what if you're right? So. You know, whenever I look at a problem, one of the first things I like to do is I like to play out the worst case scenario. Okay, so you're in Texas. So let's say you went gung ho cash discounting. There's a guy I personally know a guy right now in Texas selling 25 cash discount deals a month personally himself Mm -hmm. in Texas. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so let's say that you do that and you get 250 merchant accounts and three years from now, the bottom drops out. And for whatever reason, cash discounting is illegal in, in Texas. Well, let me ask you a question. What's going to happen the next day? Are all of your merchants going to say, well, I guess we're no longer taking credit card. Right. 
No, no way. They're gonna you're gonna reach out to them mm-hmm. and say, "I'm I so sorry. We have to switch you back to traditional processing." Right. You still got the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I have such a hard time with. Some of the the remaining, you know, large established processors that don't have cash discount programs yet. Right. I talk to them, and their 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 objection is, "Well, we just don't even know what's going to happen with it yet." Well, what we do know is that it's a great way to generate new merchant accounts. Mm-hmm. And so why do you care about anything else? It's, you're a, g- it's an entree, right? You're going to have the relationship. So exactly. offer it. If, they, if somebody wants, you know, are you really willing to lose customers mm-hmm. because you don't offer cash discounting? I mean, if they get to use it for two or three years and save a bunch of money, again, I personally think that it is going to be a long-lived program in some form. I think it'll change. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to be around in some form. I think, you know, for instance, I could see a compromise where maybe it's, you know, the way surcharging is now, but it gets federalized, just like the, the cash discounting did with the Durban Amendment, maybe a ruling from the Supreme Court or something that says, you know, these state laws that, that don't allow surcharging are an affront to free speech. And so maybe it's you're allowed to surcharge in every state. So now we can save them 50 percent. But right. to me, none of that even matters because whatever it plays out as you have the merchant relationship. Right. So and here's another example I'd like to I'd like to yeah. throw out there. You know, I remember, gosh, it's probably been 20 years now when ATM owners started surcharging oh, ATM yeah. transactions. Right. There was a hue and cry among consumers. Oh, I'm sure. But before you knew it, everybody was surcharging. Yep. And now we all pay surcharges. Yep. And and they're super expensive. I was just at a machine this morning where they wanted three dollars. I'm like, yeah. oh, I better get more than the forty dollars I was right. going to get just so I can make it worth my while, oh, right. right? Right. I wish it was a four percent surcharge. Right. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that would be much more affordable. But I think there's a there's a lesson there. Yeah. Everybody thought, oh, consumers won't stand for this. Right. But they did they because did. there were enough times when they were in the airport, the casino, right. wherever. Right. And I also think, you know, there's and, – and so the same thing goes to, to surcharging tr- credit and debit card transactions in that it's sort of like you can't shut that barn door after all the – after right. half the horses have gotten yeah, out. Exactly. So yeah. let's say and, – and we discussed this in, in a previous podcast. Let's say there's only 10,000 merchants in the country that are doing it. That's mm-hmm. 10,000 votes, people. Right, right. And I would say at this point I'm sure there's – 150,000. Yeah, I'm sure it's You more. know, probably, right. you know what I mean? And then there's got to be 10, 20,000 a month signing up. So it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's gaining momentum. Gaining and I think the speed. more momentum it has, yeah. the more used to it people get. I mean, exactly. right now, it's a network effect. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, easy question here from Joshua. He says, is it better to set appointments on the phone or in person? And the answer to this question is really simple it is whichever one you're better at. That's right. So, I mean, you know, so I'll give you a good example. You know, me personally, I started out in phone sales and um, it was fun. You know, I like, it's funny. I like phone sales in a room with other people on the phone. I, I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Me sitting in my home office making phone calls. Nah. It's for me. It's not for me. Right. So I walk out in the, I go out in the field, go down the street, walk into the businesses I want to do. And sometimes I'll even, you know, I used to do a thing where I would uh, take a t- some time and plan out and do like a trifold brochure for pizza shops. And I'd, you know, make a partnership with a point of sale system and all that. Mm-hmm. And then I would get a map and Google maps and I would map out the, the 30 pizza shops near me. Right. And I would just go and I'd walk into all of them. And so even then I'm still walking in and you might think, well, that's just not as efficient. You could just call all those people. Yeah, but I suck at doing that. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather walk in cause I'm better at that. You know, right. um, I know a, a really good friend of mine, really good rep. 
Um, he doesn't like doing the door to door. He's amazing on the phone. Right. So he calls on the phone. So, you know, the answer here, uh, Josh is whichever one you're better at. And I, and I would say almost even more important than that, whichever one you're actually going to do and feel comfortable doing. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, some people are like, Oh, I'm, you know, I know a lot. I mean, honestly, to, to be really honest, I think most salespeople are, are actually better face to face just cause there's, you have more to go on. Right. But the problem is that most sales reps, are not as comfortable, to your point, as comfortable face-to-face, right. meaning they're not going to do it. But don't you think that um, most prospective clients are much more comfortable face-to-face than they are on the phone? Absolutely. T- to me, I guess my my belief, and you know, anybody that watches my videos knows that it's like, I'm all about the face-to-face because, in my opinion, there's no question that it works better, mm-hmm. but phone sales, phone appointments work a lot better than no appointments. Right. And so if you're the if you're the person that drives up in front of that first business every day and you can't you can't open the car door and I've been there, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think that's it's so funny in our industry. Some things that don't get talked about very much. Hopefully on this show, we'll be able to bring some things to light. You know, right. It's so funny. You know, I can't even tell you what an enormous impact that one moment has on our entire industry. Mm-hmm. The moment every day when a sales rep pulls up in front of their first business. Right. The moment every day when a sales rep picks up the phone to make their first call. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand the paperwork. They're not sure they're going to get paid. They don't have business cards yet. They don't have whatever. Mm-hmm. And whatever, you know, their dog was sick. It doesn't matter. Whatever that excuse or legitimate or otherwise, it's an excuse. And whatever keeps them from picking the phone up, whatever keeps them from walking in, mm-hmm. that has a big impact. Well, you know, I, I, I tell people a lot of times, you know, being um, a reporter, I spend a lot of time on the phone. Right. And I've been doing it for 40 years. Right. But there are still days mm-hmm. when I have to hold my hand over that phone <laughs> yeah. and just like, okay, Pat, will yourself, will yeah. myself to do it. And once, yeah. you know, once I'm talking, I'm fine. Then you're fine. I'm fine. One good example of that, I talk to Angela about this sometimes, my assistant, because she'll schedule this whole day for me of pre-scheduled 15-minute phone calls, mm-hmm. you know, 30, 40 of them or whatever. Right. And not a, there's not a time when the phone is ringing that I don't hope they don't pick up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is so stupid. Oh, isn't it? But when, when they pick up, I love it. I'm like, oh, this is a great conversation. Right. But every time the phone rings, I'm like, I just oh. need a break. Oh, oh man, I hope if they, they don't, don't pick, pick up. up. I can go have a go get a soda or something. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I think you know, I think that's that's important. So you, you have know, to be aware of your own, you know, self awareness, right? Yep. Exactly. Super important. Okay, let's let's do one more. We're gonna do four today. Um, Julian, I've been asked about contracts and cancellation fees more than I can remember in the past. I have my own ways of overcoming this objection, but I'd love to hear your creative ways to overcome it. So, Julian, let's first talk about the reason. The reason you're hearing about it more than ever before is because it used to be that everybody did it. Mm-hmm. Well, now the vast majority are doing the month-to-month you know, agreements and things like that. And so, um, you know, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing the, the agreement. The way that I always approach it is that it's mutually beneficial. Right. So what I tell people is I say, hey, uh, and again, a lot of the, a lot of what I'm going to say right now depends on your your ISO, your processor, and their policies because you got to find out. But I'll tell them and say, hey, look, how many times have you had a price increase in the last you know five years? Or maybe mm-hmm. you didn't even notice. But you mm-hmm. know, um, what we do is I lock in your your rates for you, and at the same time, we're kind of it's a mutually beneficial thing. You know, I know that you're going to stay with me for three years. Right. You know that I'm going to be servicing you for three years and hold these prices where they're at. 
Um, and so it's a mutually beneficial thing. Um, and the other thing is to um, Julian, make sure you know what your exceptions are. Most processors do have exceptions. Mm -hmm. They go out of business. They don't have to pay the cancellation fee. Because again, a three-year agreement is really, the three-year part is kind of meaningless. The thing that matters is the early termination fee. Right. Like that's really what the objection is about. So if it's, you know, a $295 early termination fee, what they really want to know is, okay, cool. So that's fine. But what if I go out of business? Now I'm, I'm struggling, I'm going bankrupt, and I still got to pay you $300. Right. And so know what your exceptions are and talk about those. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, look, you know, if something happens, God forbid your business goes under or whatever, you know, obviously I'm not going to charge that. And we do have exceptions for that. I'll be taking care of this. This is just me wanting to make sure that I don't come in here and do all this work, set you up, get everything going. And then a month later, you decide to switch to somebody else because right. they offered you a penny less. Right. I'll tell you one last tip, Julie. And the other thing I do is I give all of my customers a written uh, thing. It's on my letterhead. And it's a price match guarantee. Oh. I staple my business card at the bottom and I give every single one of my customers, even when I'm just pitching them, I show them that. And I say, you know, really, why would you want to leave me within three years? The only reason is really simple. Somebody offers you a better rate, right? Uh -huh. Well, we don't have to worry about that. Here's my price match guarantee. Uh -huh. And I hand it to them. Uh -huh. That's the other big objection. So I don't know if you had any of the tips on that, but those, that's no, the way I, I handle it. That sounds pretty good. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. Hey, uh, shoot me some emails with more questions. Put in the subject line, questions for the podcast. Questions for the podcast. Uh, email james at ccsalespro.com. I would love to hear from you. Love to get some questions from you, and we will do our best to answer them on an upcoming episode. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Green Sheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Merchant sales is a business built on partnerships. My colleague Dale Lassig addressed this aspect of the business in a set of lead stories that were published last month at the Green Sheet, and it was aptly titled, Partners, Payments Industries, DNA. Hmm. Quote, every handshake between a merchant-level sale salesperson and a customer reflects a heritage of payments industry partnerships, Dale wrote. The card brands and issuers, acquirers and merchants, technology companies and third-party service providers collectively form a complex network of partners that drive today's fast, secure electronic payments. Dale, who has worked with many players in this space, from being herself a set of feet on the street, to marketing and consulting for solution providers, to a reporter and columnist for the Green Sheet, asked executives from different parts of the industry for insights on how they choose partners and create profitable, long-term relationships. I'd like to share some of what she found. Agility, continuity, and security remain paramount. Agile systems and processing continuity remain a paramount concern for merchants large and small, experts agreed. So does security. Merchants select partners who confidently convey assurances that systems will be kept secure, compliant, and up-to-date. But it hasn't always been that way. Not that long ago, a merchant who wanted to change processors would have had to rip out systems, install new equipment, and train staff on that new equipment. The advent of cloud-based technologies has changed that. Mark Gardner, founder and CEO of North American Bank Card, said it's critical for ISOs and MLSs to invest the time, research, and resources needed to identify partners that deliver solutions that will help them to attract, retain, and expand their customer bases. That's why his managers and employees are continuously evaluating new technologies 
and enhancing security, he said. Our approach to our merchants is one of growth, together, Gardner explained. If we can help our merchants be poised to attain or even surpass their growth aspirations, then we are doing our job. Jennifer Miles, Executive Vice President of North America at Ingenical Company, Ingenical Group, said her company works hand-in-hand -hand with partners to ensure they get to market quickly and successfully. Because we view our partners' sales teams as an extension of our own, we work closely with them to ensure they have the information they need not only to be educated in the solutions they're selling, but also have the marketing materials needed to put their best foot forward, she said. Todd Linden, who oversees North American processing at the international online payments firm PaySafe, offered a similar assessment. He said successful partnerships are those that support seamless transitions to new products and services. That's why he says PaySafe has taken an agnostic approach to products, services, and social media apps. Hmm. Yeah. ISOs and MLSs are well served when they take a similar approach to their partnerships, experts agreed. Many merchants leave an ISO or an MLS relationship because the solution they've been sold doesn't have the bells and whistles they feel they need, explained Ben Gorteski, uh, CEO of USEPA, which provides payment gateway services. So they start looking for replacements. Let them know you have a portfolio of product or offerings, Gorteski advised. They might not need a new solution today, but when they do, they'll know to talk first with you about their needs. He also related that USAE Pay has partnered with thousands of banks, ISOs, and other gateways that leverage the firm's cloud-based solutions to be adjusted as updating routines and other needs arise. You know, it's funny. I think uh, one of the most discouraging things as a sales rep has to be when your merchant calls to let you know that they've already canceled and moved on, mm -hmm. and you ask them why, and they tell you it's because they went to get a solution that you already have. Yes. Oh, Ooh, I hate that so much. Isn't that? <laughs> and all you had to do is let them know up front what them you had. So exactly. it's, it's interesting because it's kind of a whole separate sale. It's like, you know, you sell them based on what they need today. Right. But you also have to let them know about what they might need tomorrow. Right. And and, and, and as the as the advisor to them, right. that's really incumbent upon you to say, hey, listen, I know you don't need this right now, but maybe when you grow, you might want Right. And a lot of times they don't want to reach out to you because even if they enjoyed the service you're providing, they feel awkward. If you don't to, have it. Right. They don't want to reach out and say, hey, I'm shopping around for this. And then, oh, you don't have it. So, right. you know, you got to give them, you know, once you, after the sale is made and they're happy about it within that first month, you better follow up and you better give them all the stuff about mm -hmm. what you have. Because mm -hmm. I've lost, oh, I'm sure I've lost $100,000 in lost uh, commission. I'm sure a lot more than that just from deals i remember one uh i remember one deal kind of not on the technology side but partnerships i guess um uh you know cash advances sure i was really never into that i was just kind of thought eh, cash advancing that's not my thing um until i had a seven location pizza shop that borrowed two hundred fifty thousand on a cash advance from a competitor Ooh. not only did i lose the i don't know thirteen fourteen thousand dollars in commission i would have made off of that right but of course they had to switch providers to do the split pay exactly so i lost seven merchant i lost seven mids and fourteen thousand in commission in one phone call and he's like yeah the deal's done i already signed it I already got the money and i'm like 
I do cash discounting. And he's like, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> right, right. Stink. So, That's an expensive lesson to learn. a very expensive lesson. After that, I pretty much told everybody, anything that you want, just call me first. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I have something that will work for you. And you if know? I don't, I will. I'll find, you know, or if I don't, I'll find somebody. Right. And I tell people, look, you know, I have, you know, it's not going to be awkward if you come to me and I don't have something you want, but at least I can re- refer you to somebody else who integrates with what I do have. And it's your partners. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so what makes for a successful partnership? Well, I'd say it's trust, equality, and staying ahead of the curve. Gardner likens building partnerships to baking a cake. We need to add ingredients at the right time to create a beautiful finished product that everyone is interested in eating, he said. There's a multi-level approach that includes us working with the community, strategic organizations, and our own people to create value for our merchants. That's why it's important to vet potential partners thoroughly, Gardner counseled. Just like the wrong ingredients can ruin a cake, a bad partnership decision can ruin a merchant relationship. A successful partnership is more than just a business arrangement between two organizations. It's about creating something better than either of you can create on your own. Hmm. Lisa Shipley, general manager for FinTech Solutions at Transaction Network Services, put it this way. You have to feel you're getting as much as you're giving, she said. Each partner must value the relationship equally while providing the right pricing and services. They also need to be on their toes and able to anticipate when and how merchant needs will evolve and change, which is what we were just speaking to. There are plenty of cool new technologies in the marketplace, but not every one of these is the next iPod. ISOs and MLSs need to choose wisely which they can best do by focusing on the business cases for products and services, whether we respond to clients' real-world needs and how the card brands will react, which is also very important. Sure. Um, Todd Linton um, said, We think years ahead about where things are going and where Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and and American Express will want to push things. We work hard to understand all the pieces and the touch points. If you're successful, I'm successful. This is the mantra that underlies successful partnerships. If you can help downstream partners make money and cut costs, then it would seem an excellent recipe for success. But it's also important to remember that there are no constants in business, so it's a good idea to reassess partnerships with some regularity. In doing so, you may find changes are necessary to reflect changing market conditions and business models. This is something that uh, Verifone folks said they understand firsthand. Joe Mock, uh, president of North American Operations, said, As Verifone transforms from a hardware to a solutions business, we've had to internally change our muscle memory to build up a true professional services organization. So the bottom line to all this? Agility, continuity, security, and the ability and the insights needed to make, to be able to make changes when necessary. These are foundations of good partnerships that drive success in merchant services. Hmm. You know, it's one idea I keep thinking about while you're talking about all that. Um, <clears throat> one of the businesses that I'm, I'm surprised nobody else has started yet is, um, you know, there's such a focus in our industry on these ISV partnerships. Right. And the, and the focus seems to be we would need to find ISVs that we can lock into our processing solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting to me is that 
you know, there hasn't been a big push for people to say, I would like to see a company that says our goal is to find ISVs to be to open up so that many ISOs and processors can work with can them. Work with them. Right? Right. Because that's what everybody's really looking for. And I think, you know, the the truth, the sad truth is that most ISOs that I know, even most processors I know, are not ideally positioned to create the next great point of sale system for a hair salon. Right. You know, I and mean, they're just not. And it would just make so much more sense if we could get some of these ISVs into a, you know, I'd love to see somebody put together a marketplace. And something like North American Bankard has a, a marketplace of mm-hmm. sorts like this. Um, but, you know, to a marketplace where a lot of the different ISOs could come and use these different solutions. Because that's, it, it, in my mind, you know, if I'm building a team of reps, one of the main things I would try to focus on in today's market is... I want to have multiple solutions right. so that so that they can focus on one vertical. Oh, you want to go after pizza shops? Great. Mm-hmm. I have these three point of sale systems that we sell that specifically focus on pizza shops. I have this, you know, uh, cash advance program for pizza shops that, you know, really allow them to do that focusing without you as the ISO having to do a ton of work. Right. Because the ISVs, let's face it, the main thing they want, you know, they come to these processors and it's funny because the ISV never really gets what they want. Mm-hmm. What they want is more business. Sure. But the processors don't offer that. Right. What they offer is bring us your business mm-hmm. and we'll do the processing for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we'll lock you in and we'll give you a small cut of the profits usually. Right. But again, I think what most ISVs are looking for, and I think you might be surprised if you have a, a decent sized ISO that's doing a lot of deals. Mm-hmm. If you approached, if you found a pizza shop point of sale system that you really liked, if you reached out to them and say, hey, look, we'd like to sell your system. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I bet they would integrate with whatever gateway you wanted them to integrate with. Right. Because they're lo- that's the call that they really want to get. Exactly. They'll take the call about the integration, but what they really want is more customers. There's more customers. And what better way? Yeah. So partnerships, crucial. Crucial. Very crucial to this business. Absolutely. Good stuff, Patty. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.